And then it was funny because I ordered a smothered burrito and it's something that every single time i do it i get really excited and then i never like it yeah (laughs) i don't like smothered burritos but enough time goes by in between every smothered burrito where i think like that has got to just be the ultimate burrito i gotta do it oh no dude smothered burrito was like the size of a giant mason's brick or something it was chaotically large and i could only eat half of it and it's a hard thing to kind of take home because it's so wet. Yeah. But I did take it home. And then last night, I had the inspired idea of taking the half of my smothered burrito and wrapping it in another tortilla <laughs> and then putting it in the toaster oven. And it tasted great. It was awesome. You fixed the smothered burrito by by engineering it into just a standard unsmothered burrito, just a exactly. just a typical covered burrito. Yeah, but like it's still a bit saucy on the inside, you know. Yeah, that sounds like some sort of Taco Bell abomination, you know. <laughs> the the double decker, you know, twice <laughs> smothered burrito, you know. <laughs> oh yeah, I should have smothered it again. Burrito lasagna. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve this order. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Tell you the truth, this guy's starting to get on my nerves. You want to crown him? Then crown him. But they are who we thought they were. And we let them off the hook. It's hot. It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Gauntlet. My name is Ryan Saunders, I'm one of the hosts, and with me today is the other half of today's Gauntlet episode, and that is... Andrew Stasiulis. So Marsh is still out of town, he's on assignment in Europe, and he's been having a great time, and we were very excited for him to come home, but in the interim... Andy and I were chatting and decided, how about it? How about we do a gauntlet two-hander? Marsh and I did one a while ago, and we had focused on long cinema. And that's something Marsh and I have done for a few years at our own little long cinema club, just like a brutalizing enterprise where we sit and we cook meals and watch excessively long movies. But Andy had the inspired idea of us taking a look at some films today that are centered around two people with the idea being this week is just the two of us and so when he pitched that idea to me i thought it was really interesting and i there were a lot of movies that came to mind in terms of um you know two figures sort of face to face and dealing with each other throughout Uh, it's obviously quite hard to find films that are exclusively two people um, but we did we we got some today that are pretty close to that. There are some very limited interference with the outside world in in the worlds of the two films we have today. Mm-hmm. You know, when you first pitched it, I didn't necessarily know what direction it would go in, but I also kind of think that this was sort of inevitable where we've ended up and thinking about what happens when we've got two people, whether they're in a room or just in a in a big space, and it's just the two of us sort of, you know, colliding and... Locked in. Locked in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I think, you know, 
for Savvy Gauntlet listeners, a few weeks back, we inadvertently uh, came across this topic by looking at the film Hell in the Pacific by the great John Borman, starring Lee Marvin and Toshiro Mifune. And, and I guess that still had sort of been resonating in my head, because that is certainly uh, just the two of them. And so for me, yeah, I thought it'd be fun to, to really focus in from, from that uh, that central conceit of only two actors and actually how how difficult that must be, especially in terms of creating something that can really be engaging. I think people uh, are so used to, to, to cinema that's just filled with people and faces and bodies, you know, but, but, but how can a filmmaker craft an experience for the audience that feels so sparse and yet uh, still very big in terms of its ideas and its concept and its drama. And uh, I I have to say, you know, I think we both did a pretty good job this week <laughs> before we bring so the too. films in uh, <laughs> to show you how, how in spite of having such a sparse cast, uh, the films can, can really provide uh, all the thrills and chills that you would expect <laughs> of a, of a, of a much larger you know, Avengers Endgame size cast or whatever, you know. Yeah. This is true. This is true. I was excited by the prompt, but I naturally have always a little bit of hesitancy when there are those types of restrictions because I've always struggled with films that feel like plays, that feel like, especially if they're just literal adaptations of a play. Mm-hmm. There are so many great ones. And I think that the ones that are so great are the ones that really explore the plays cinematically, sort of embellish it, add a lot of life to it. I mean, that sort of goes without saying, but does remind me of us talking about short stories that one week when we did shortcuts and thinking about the process of edition. And for multiple reasons, both of the films we picked today, <laughs> I don't think could be adapted to the stage. <laughs> One, just because it's probably like it wouldn't be nearly as interesting um, spatially because so much of the location is a character in itself. And the other one, the cops would probably be called if it was put on live in front of a in front of yeah. a theater, even if it was like, you know, a disgusting, dank basement in, in New York, like yeah. a nasty black box theater or uh, the Grand Guignol in, in France. Uh, even then, I think that this film I, I found might not be suitable for a live audience. <laughs> that said, you know, I think if you wander around certain areas of Amsterdam, you might uh, you might find something like this. I've heard some tales, sure. but but <laughs> I I I don't think though even in those places you'd get quite the experience of uh, of the the film that uh, we're about to introduce to our audience today. So. Yeah, I mean, I guess just with that in mind, maybe I should I should just dive into it. Um, it's the earlier of the two films. So, you know, when I was looking through films and thinking about what to pick, I was also trying to think about the two of us. And just thinking about the gauntlet and the types of films we pick, last week we had a guest, Alex Sherman, who described the the gauntlet as having a sort of Venn diagram of sorts of each of us filling our respective roles and there are trends and things we pick. We always obviously shake it up, but there are, there are things we can sort of count on each other to sort of like provide for, for the, the programming uh, of the show. And I was thinking especially about the types of films you and I pick and how one of the things I've enjoyed so much about the gauntlet is both the films you've exposed me to 
and the types of films I try to expose to you simply because it really feels like you're introducing films to me that I truly would not seek out on my own. And I also try to surprise by bringing things I think that maybe haven't been on, on your radar. You know, a lot of the programming you and I do almost feels like part of our friendship of confronting each other with images and ideas that might not be, you know, in our scope that we typically deal with. So when I read the synopsis of the 2004 film Anatomy of Hell from the French provocateur Catherine Briat, I thought, you know, that sounds a lot like what Andy and I get up to on the pod, forcing each other to look at things that maybe we aren't as comfortable with or isn't in our in our Rolodex, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, of course, this film in a uh, much more radically extreme way. So to give an idea of what Anatomy of Hell is, the film is about a man and a woman the man played by porn legend Rocco Sifredi, and the woman is played by Amira Kassar. And the narrative of the film, you know, the quote-unquote narrative of what we have here, is that it begins on a night inside a gay bar in France, and the woman enters this bar with the goal of committing suicide. And she's found in the bathroom after having slit her wrists by the man who grabs her and says, why did you do this? And she says, because I'm a woman. He takes her to a pharmacy to sort of get her taken care of, make sure she's all right. And as they leave the pharmacy together and they're wandering the streets of Paris at night, she has a proposition for this man, this man who has rescued her from suicide. And she says, I will pay you to come back with me to watch me when I'm unwatchable and what develops then is a series of nights where the man sits and watches the woman as she's completely unclothed and they explore every orifice and (laughs) crevice of her body metaphorically and literally and you know I came across this little bit of trivia on the IMDb page for this film where it mentions unwatchable is a euphemism for menstruating on her period or quote unquote on the rag. And I was thinking about how in a weird way how appropriate that bit of trivia is to be on the page for this film, a film that is confronting the misogyny inherent in sort of like all men in the world because the man himself is very much a symbol. He is a gay man, but Catherine is using the idea of a gay man symbolically as just Mm -hmm. a man who has rejected women, who is afraid of women, is unfamiliar with it. I think, you know, that being one of the most provocative ideas in the film, and this is something we can talk about, is that was certainly a knee-jerk reaction for people who really hated this movie and were like, oh, this is just perpetuating this stereotype both of the gay man as being someone who is inherently misogynistic or has a little bit of straight in him because there is some, (laughs) I don't know if I would say lovemaking, but there is certainly some carnal displays uh, within this film. Yeah. And, (laughs) but I think my read on this, again, it's like 
her film is not about male psychology. It is very much about misogyny and the way that feels and the way that's internalized. And then also, how do you symbolically represent that? Well, you have a man who has truly rejected all women. But again, to sort of bring this back to this bit of IMDb trivia, I was thinking if this film was ever rebooted 10 years from now, if they were going to do it again, um, instead of a man, maybe the uh, it would be a woman in a room with like an ethereal, like, creature imdb that like represents all men in the world <laughs> and she's confronting that group of forum posters and trivia makers as to what a woman is um wow yeah it's an extremely provocative film i'm not going to get into the details of what's on display right now that is something that uh, you and me buddy are going to have to to go through together um in this episode but it is a yeah it's a film from 2004, she had adapted it from her own book called Pornocracy. Uh, it's a novel Catherine had written herself. And she also, you know, I think it's worth addressing. And this is something the films actually have in common that we'll talk a little bit about. But Catherine is in the film as the internal monologue of both the man and the woman. So while we do are focusing on these two people, there is sort of the spiritual third party involved. And um, I guess I'll leave it at that, and we'll try to figure out what that third party is, if it sort of creates a third character, or if maybe it even brings it back into turning both the man and the woman as a single symbol inside of Catherine Briah's mind. Um, but yeah, it is a... It's an edgy, provocative film from the era of can walkouts, the types of things where, you know, <laughs> international auteurs would make something so extreme that would make the news. You know, people were shocked and outraged seeing it in the theaters. And, uh, yeah, it very firmly puts its foot down and belongs in the canon of the new French extremity. There's, there's no doubt about that. There are images in this film that have challenged me unlike any film I've seen in a long, long time or potentially ever. Um, so very happy to have brought it and to, to see how you responded as well. But I will, I will leave it at that for now. Thank you, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you know, that, that's what I did to us. Um, what, what did you bring to sort of like even out the playing field a little bit yeah, here? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, again, when, when I chose this topic, I, I really was, or at least proposed the topic to you because I think it was sort of a mutual, um, mm -hmm. you know, a mutually agreed uh, experience that we were we were setting ourselves uh, up for. Um, yeah, I, I really was was thinking of that in mind. You know that it that it wasn't just the idea of of two people, just two cast members, uh, but but really the idea of just you know of of two. Uh, souls like mm -hmm. you know intertwined and and having it out you know the 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 intense the intense one-on-one -on -one kind of uh conflict i guess you can have of of trying to to really examine a a relationship you know and i think that's what really makes um you know, two-hander experiences in, in cinema and theater. And, and I think it's it's good that you brought up the difference between a sort of like theatrical experience of just two people because there's plenty of that. You know, the theaters um, are about, you know, making the most out of the minimal. Um, mm -hmm. But but really, yes, in cinema, it's it's trying to take something that's so 
often uh, maximal and and strip it down and and what do we have there? And so yeah, I think I was looking for films that really were uh, an intense an intense head to head and and we yeah. certainly got that out of your film and I think my film also uh, achieves that um, but in a sort of different way <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, the film that I came across was one that that you know I I it was sort of there I'd, I'd seen it you know like on uh, some streaming service and had read about it and it it had left my mind, and then this topic uh, brought it brought it back. Uh, it came rushing back, and 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 this was uh, the, the the perfect week to 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 do this this film to introduce this film. The film that I chose is a Russian film from 2010 called "How I Ended This Summer," directed by Alexei Popogrebsky. Uh, this is the story of two men who uh, are spending their summer at a remote meteorological outpost in the very, very, very far north regions of Russia, and the Russian Arctic particularly. They are the last remnants of a sort of, I guess, decaying agency or group who, who monitor the weather that will eventually arrive, you know, in, in Moscow, in, in, you know, the, the news, the day's, you know, weather report, you know, this film focuses on the, the people who were stationed here, uh, and in the words of the director, you know, uh, for him, the Arctic is, the weather's kitchen that's the way he described it in a in an interview you know that that in, around the world it's always you know in these extreme places and particularly the arctic where you know the weather that we're eventually going to feel in you know in the middle of a country it 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 gets cooked up and so these these people uh, who are here in these places are are the sort of like you know the the vanguard of the climate extremes that we all experience. For him, this became the perfect place to set uh, his drama of two men from two different generations of Russian life locked in with one another in a barren Arctic landscape, a very harsh and forbidding landscape. And the film, sort of charts what happens when two people from two completely different ways of of understanding and making sense of the world uh, are left alone. Uh, and by alone, I mean with only one another to sort of keep their sanity, or in the case of the film that we have watched, perhaps lose their sanity. Uh, <laughs> it sounded like a really interesting film. Um, it is a film that apparently won several awards at film festivals around. It, it had a lot of really good um, reviews, you know, as I sort of came across it. You know, people thought really highly of this film. And so I was like, man, I've never seen it. And, and I thought it would be a, a, a perfect film for us to look at. And uh, knowing what I knew about your film... Uh, 
I thought maybe a little less uh, extreme, uh, yeah. <laughs> though it does have some some pretty uh, some pretty heavy moments. Um, you know, for all the heat and the idea of hell, the inferno of your film, I thought it would be interesting to sort of have a uh, an Arctic chill to perhaps cool us down quite a bit. And and boy, uh, I felt that because uh, I watched Anatomy of Hell first, and this really was like getting a bucket of cold water thrown on me after that. And uh, yeah, um, I was, uh, for me, you know, I thought that... Um, should just keep leaning into the idea of, you know, psychological uh, penetration. <laughs> so, so that's the film that I, I brought, How I Ended This Summer. Thank you, thank you. I had a very similar experience because I also watched Anatomy from Hell first. And after a few things are established in that film and you get an idea of, okay, each subsequent moment is going to be trying to top the last extremity that I've just been, you know, forced to watch. I I was very uneasy and I was afraid for much of the film. This movie invoked a lot of fear in me that I haven't felt in a while watching in a movie. And I think that that's a testament to especially her attack on the male viewer, Mm -hmm. you know, and confronting them with inherent things that like you might not realize maybe circling around like fears you may have about anything really i mean but especially the body because i guess it is first and foremost a body horror movie of sorts depending on the angle that you're looking at it definitely and watching how i ended the summer was such a radically different experience i found it to be extremely relaxing Mm -hmm. even though there was naturally quite a bit of tension that develops like i don't want to necessarily undermine that but This film, to me, again, has so many flavors in its recipe that are the types of things I do really enjoy. I love just staring at, like, gorgeous landscapes like this and feeling that type of isolation. I honestly felt like I could taste this movie. I've never been to the Arctic, but just the the way the air probably tastes and smells, this, like, purity to it, I think was evoked really well, um, primarily through a lot of really interesting time-lapse footage and just the, the colors that are on display in the Arctic feel like it comes from another planet, you know? Mm-hmm. I wouldn't necessarily call it slow cinema because, you know, we are familiar, we've seen slow cinema, you know, but this one is, it, it is, has a relaxed pace. You know, we're not, it's not stuffed with dialogue. There are conversations, but a lot of it is watching men at work in a very remote location. And to me, that's like kind of cinematic catnip at times. Mm-hmm. I feel cozy while watching something like this. I did not feel cozy watching Anatomy of Hell. So I do love your description of like a bucket of water being thrown on you because I also, it was hot yesterday when I watched How I Ended This Summer and it it did cool me down. That's good. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it is interesting pairing the two films together because they are, no pun intended here, polar opposites in many (laughs) regards in terms of their their space and and how they use space to uh, achieve their their goals in relation to the audience experience. Um, Yeah, you know, I mean, Anatomy of Hell is a movie that predominantly uh, takes place in a single room, uh, mm-hmm. not a very large room at that, you know, a single room. And and even, you know, if you really want to laser focus 
basically a single bed is is yeah. really where most of the the um, the the, the horror, the body horror is going to take place. And, and I guess you could even go even further and say that really the space of this film is really, you know, um, locked in on a body, a, a, a mm-hmm. pair of bodies, but predominantly the, the space that we're going to. And I use this term um, lightly uh, play with, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're yeah. going to play with. Uh, <laughs> Holy cow! Uh, is is the 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 body of this this woman? And yes, in in the case of how I ended the summer, it's it's this big, huge Arctic uh, tundra uh, that that you know at at certain points our characters are running all over, uh, and at another point chasing each other <laughs> across. So, so yeah, there, there, there's one that is, is very, uh, intensive and there's one that's, that's very extensive as well as I think the, the sort of more metaphorical exploration, you know, mm-hmm. the anatomy of hell, the anatomy here is, is, is yes, like, literal and, and figurative anatomy and anatomy lesson, the body, the body as space. Um, and you know, how I ended the summer ultimately leaves us with, with much more far reaching ideas of nations, nation states, generations, you know, uh, the age gap politics, right. A changing world, you know, that sort of thing. And not to say that those ideas aren't, aren't, also perhaps present in anatomy of hell but but again i think that they're um the the particular sort of emphasis being placed between these two films on the individual versus perhaps a a generation like we come to those those battlegrounds uh in very 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 different ways (laughs) it's true but at the same time i was surprised i mean at these battlegrounds, some of the things they had in common, because the villa that the this room and this body is inside of in an enemy of hell is sort of a seaside villa. When we do get brief glimpses outside of this like drab, gray, uh, very dimly lit space, there is the you know the ocean out there. There's crashing waves against these steep drop-off cliffs and I I think I read that she had had filmed the movie in Portugal and you know in the film the man describes the incessant crashing of waves outside as a bitch in heat afraiding that it's going to suffocate them and drown them Mm -hmm. and I don't necessarily think that that's the metaphor that's being explored in how I ended the summer but there is you know nature outside is so present there are the crashing waves of the arctic when when these men are sitting and thinking about decisions they need to be making or about the tensions that they're feeling amongst each other like that those waves are always uh, a nice thunderous noise deep in the background that kind of like guides the pulse of the film Mm -hmm. and when i was thinking about movies that have two people i feel like films with two people ultimately lead to like an extreme crisis you know like well what's the inevitable outcome if you have a film and a film needs a certain type of conflict depending on how you look at it and you've got two people well these (laughs) these two people are gonna have to butt heads eventually that's very early on in anatomy of hell it is like a non-stop battle of both words and bodies 
in that film. And here in How I Ended the Summer, it, it takes a while to get there. It, it feels like the seeds are planted early on. There are stories that one of the men, Sergei, the older man, shares of like, oh, there were these other people like outside at this research station and eventually they, they killed each other. They went mad. You know, it's like what you would expect from an isolated story of paranoia with, with two men out in the elements. But honestly, their relationship is like pretty chill for most of the film before it eventually reaches that like inevitable conflict zone. Yeah. The unraveling. <laughs> yeah, they were like ultimately like pleasant people to spend time with and they didn't seem to really despise each other's company. I mean, Sergey was like kind of paternalistic. He's like, "Oh, you know, he's always telling his buddy Pasha like take a nap." Man, like, take a load off. Like, you've been working real hard. <laughs> well, yeah, and maybe that's something we could pick apart a little bit more. I don't know sure. if I would necessarily <laughs> describe their relationship as super chummy <laughs> well, yeah. from the get-go. Um, but but it's certainly, yes, it, it, it goes from, you know, uh, maybe, shall we say, like, professional to in intensely personal by by the end uh, The that... Yes, as things uh, spiral out of control. But but to your point, I mean, yes, like we look at two films here that are both uh, presenting duels to their mm-hmm. audience, not just duels as in two people, but but a duel that develops. And yes, Anatomy of Hell uh, wastes very little time in setting up the the duel that's going to take place in this this isolated uh, farmhouse in this bedroom in Portugal, I guess, right? Yeah. But it's, it's supposed to be France. But yes, you right. know, this this duel between a man and a woman, between all men and all women uh, for Catherine Breat. But, but yeah, we have two duels ultimately taking place here. Um, and they are both... Uh, psychological and uh, physical in their in their own ways, um, and I think it's a really important point to to sort of stress something that you brought up in your introduction about Anatomy of Hell. I think that it's um, it's very easy to to look at the film on its surface. I mean, the film is 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 it's it's very uh it's very explicit you know so i think that explicit. that explicit quality like really is quite shocking and quite in your face and it's it's sort of hard for i would imagine i'm going to go on a limb here and say most people who are going to experience this film uh to to get past um mm-hmm. but but i was even through myself you know like trying to to face those those challenges those difficulties uh, and and get through them, and it actually helped me when I was able to read interviews with her and and sort of mm. uh, you know answer some of the lingering questions that that I was really like struggling with. And and you kind of brought this up in your introduction, so I think it should be pointed out because it is like right at the start of the film, you know, when this this duel is the terms of the duel are ultimately going to be like laid out for yeah. for us uh that that yes it 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 is technically a, a a gay bar but but i read in an interview with her where she was saying well i mean it's a gay bar but she's like that's not the way i i conceived of it you know for her the idea of this bar was this sort of sort of like this fantasy space 
of a place where where men have no use for women, <laughs> where it's just men who are not into women, you know? And I think the, the again, the, the sort of surface reading could just be like, oh, it's a gay bar. But she wasn't like, I'm not trying to make a point about necessarily like homosexuals or gay men. I'm trying to create this sort of like idealized space of, you know, just like, you know, a club where it's like just dudes rock is the is the anthem, you know, in in almost right. every way imaginable. You know, a place where there's just nothing but contempt for women, uh, physically, emotionally, mentally. And I, I think it's 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 really helpful if if as a viewer you can kind of understand that because I think the issues that developed over the years with this film when it came out and, and probably like now, you know, I would almost imagine this film would be even more controversial today for, for yeah. certain audience members because there is in that, that setup, this idea almost of like, well, what's going on here? You know, when she basically is like, I came here to find a man that is just not into women that has, you know, that is again, like not interested in women in any way and that people could kind of read that as like, well, what is this? Some sort of like uh, French extreme idea of like conversion therapy that's going to develop here, you know, where right. she's trying to take a gay man and be like, I'm going to make you look at a woman, you know, and, and, and that's not what she's trying to do, you know? Yeah, she's... I, I agree. I think it's so important to read this film as a series of symbols and especially the distancing effect of having her be the internal monologue of both of them. I think is sort of a self-reflexive gesture at drawing attention to the fact that these are creations of hers and not necessarily real people with real psyches and she's not trying to make broad claims about gender and sexuality through that lens of like looking at individuals that are representative of certain subcultures or groups because I do think, especially that beginning, like the very first image we have is an unsimulated blowjob between two men like out on the street. And if you think about it through that lens that she's creating, the space of just a space where men don't need women, like what is the ultimate extension of that? And it's like, well, that's two guys like sucking each other's cocks like outside on the street, outside of this bar, you know, like that's the ultimate image of like uh, like men having no need for women in this like carnal way. In this, mm-hmm. in, in in the in this exploration of the body and like the fears of the body, and yeah, because we're never given like the type of normal signifiers too. I think in the way that she makes this space feel non-specific, but more just like again broad and symbolic. Mm-hmm. It's just a bunch of men in a dark room, you know, with lots of like flashing strobe lights and pumping bass music. You know, really, the glances we're only ever seeing are between the two of them because mm-hmm. that's actually one of the interesting differences between these two films is obviously when we join how i ended this summer they've known each other for a while (laughs) you know they've been together we don't have like that that glance that we have at the beginning of anatomy of hell where she touches him in the stairwell and their eyes lock and it's like immediately clear like these are the two souls we're going to be spending the rest of the movie with like they are linked somehow and we're going to figure out what that is but with how i ended the summer these two people there is an established history between them it's not a a sudden meeting that becomes cataclysmic Mm -hmm. yeah we uh we really just sort of like um we find ourselves in in the middle 
of their relationship or perhaps in, I guess, you know, <laughs> the latter stage. Yes. Yeah. yeah. The, the, <laughs> the, the sort of the end of, of their relationship. And that's like, I think, you know, the, the sort of like dual meaning of, of the title, you know, how I, how I ended this summer. Right. It's, it's, uh, it's ultimately, as we will discover the, the, the end of a, of relationship. Um, and I guess, you know, for what it's worth, anatomy of hell is is yes the beginning of a relationship, but we will definitely see the end of a relationship <laughs> yes, as well. It'll go through all of its stages. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. I guess it's worth bringing up too. Then just the relationship that's in how I ended this summer, where you know, just like hammering that home a little bit too, thinking about these two people. Like while anatomy of hell is the man and the woman, they're a pair of symbols that are seemingly in Catherine Briah's mind, dueling together. Here in how I ended this summer we have an older man sergey who has been working here for an extremely long time he's a part of the system regularly is checking in through like archaic radio you know to get back to the to the rest of russia to find out about his family and then the younger man pavel who's sort of like also primarily referred to as pasha in the film is I believe an intern. He's like an intern studying there and spending the summer with him, which is sort of the joke of the title. Sergey's like, you're only here so you can write your little academic essay when you go home, how I ended this summer. Mm -hmm. You know, like your, right. your heart's not really in this. And there's like an element there, like you mentioned, the generations. Sergey's distrustful of Pasha because he's the only guy that knows how to use the computer that they have. You know, yeah. he makes mockery of like, oh, you're using it for role-playing games and like that sort of thing thing yeah and that's and that's really you know where we get this 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 idea that's going to develop through the film of a of a sort of like of a confrontation between two generations of of russia and and specifically because this film came out in 2010 of of putin's russia mm -hmm. you know and and this this question of you know like who makes up russia today well it's it's on the one hand guys like Sergei, who who came of age, who matured during the Soviet Union and and particularly the end, the collapse of the Soviet Union and this younger generation who who only know of the Soviet Union uh, from guys like Sergei, you know, and from history books and and have no need for it, no use for it, you know, so it's it's really that. And that's to be a little bit more specific about um, the resentment between Sergei and Pavel, Pasha, everything that Sergei does there, you know, is is basically like, you know, the old way of doing it. Uh, all the readings that are being taken mm -hmm. of the temperature, barometric pressure, all these things, Sergei's using these very old by now in 2010, you know, you'd call them almost antiquated ways or or analog ways. He's using yeah. thermometers. He's using, you know, pressure reading gauges. You know, I don't know that much about meteorology. Right. Yeah, he's like putting on bog pants and just like moving pipes around in the water to collect presumably pH samples or something like that. Like yeah. he's a man who's out there in the elements using his original tools. Yes. Um, and and. Pavel has been brought on because in the age of the internet and the age of computers, so many more things, including the weather, 
are being like digitized and turned over to automated systems. And so part of that resentment is, I think, Sergei facing like the the literal end of his purpose here, you know, with once these computer systems get online and, and are perfected and they work, uh, there's going to be no need for a guy like Sergey uh, to to exist out there. Um, mm-hmm. All this stuff is going to be done by computers and, and machines. So so that's also part of, you know, the tension that that's probably been brewing and building there for a long time. Handled, of course, in, in sort of a cold professionalism by by Sergey. But but that's it. You know, he looks at all this stuff and he looks at Pavel and he sees someone who isn't connected to the work on a human level you know and even yeah. when pavel and is trying to sort of explain to him well like hey man like the computers we're not gonna need all this stuff you know we're not gonna need to take all these we're not gonna actually have to go and do all this physical labor that you know that, that it's clear is is such a an important part of your routine you know, mm-hmm. that we can't just sit back and let the computers do the work. We're babysitters. Right. And that's it. You know, uh, Sergei's like, no, like we are important because we have to double check this stuff. And and the computers aren't quite perfect yet at any rate, you know. So so that's it. You know, Pavel is there because he's he's helping to implement these systems. And Sergei is there because he is the, the one to sort of like make sure that the systems you know, match up with those older analog ways of, of doing things. So, so that's, you know, for them, like the, the, I think the, the core of, of Sergei's sort of like resentment and Pavel's kind of like relax old man, you know, like what's going on here? Yeah. I guess, you know, when I was saying that there was like some warmth there, it was, I guess my, I was just thinking about it relative to anatomy of hell where it's not like openly confrontational between the two of them. But so many (laughs) of the problems is that divide, that distance and these barriers that the, that especially Pavel is putting between him and Sergei, you know, Pavel's the kind of guy that is sitting around listening to just like the trashiest uh like softest rock from russia in like 2010 you know he wears like his little his goofy little like plastic fragile headphones that was something that i eventually warmed up to in the film at first hearing the rock music I I got nervous I was like what is this garbage like the fact that it played over the opening credits I was like this is radically at odds with the visual style of this movie and the beauty on display like just some some trashy rock but again I, I came to like really love that element just because here's this dope Pasha, you know, who's sitting around listening to this trash, and that's, like, one of his shields that he puts up to just, like, again, further distance himself emotionally and spiritually from Sergei, who does feel as though he has a great connection, whether to the land or to just his tools. He places a lot of value in the things that he has collected through his labor over the years. And, yeah, that's just one of the many things that, you know, 
Pasha would rather be playing some first-person shooters on the computers. Mm-hmm. So funny. Yeah, and Sergey's out there hunting walrus for dinner. Right. <laughs> Again, when you were in your intro and you were like, oh, I could like smell this movie, I could taste this movie, that was like one of the first moments where I felt the same was when, you know, Pavel's like, well, what, what, what's for dinner? And, and Sergey's like, I'm out, I'm going to do some shit, there's some walrus meat left over, have some of that. And there's that great <laughs> moment where, where you could tell Pasha's like, never had walrus meat before. And he's like, seriously, like we're eating walrus. You know, something else I appreciated was the fact that they are in the Arctic and it's so cold. So they don't really need refrigerators. You just kind of like put something outside and it'll stay cold. And he he goes into this room where there's just a huge chunk of walrus meat just sitting on a table and he kind of approaches it and, and sniffs it very reluctantly. And I was in my mind trying to, to, to imagine what, walrus meat even tastes like but the very next scene you know he makes his little stew and he's like kind of gobbling it up and i was thinking damn all right you know must be good i guess you know i'll try anything but right And, and i guess i can't believe i didn't even make this connection but yeah you know the fact that i feel as though i could smell and taste much of um of the air and beauty of the Arctic landscape in how I ended the summer. Um, there are certain elements of, of anatomy of hell that are certainly quite odorous. I mean, I'm just trying to imagine oh what that room smelled like by the end of their, of their wild weekend, you know, Oof. I guess, you know, before we get inside that room though, I, a little bit more from that initial meeting between the two of them and like what leads them there. And again, thinking about the rules that this film has for us. And I guess I don't mean in terms of like the limits of what we're going to experience, but more the metaphorical rules as we were sort of like addressing initially, because the way these two figures look the man and the woman we've got Rocco who's in his like leather jacket you know he's looking like a total porn star hunk yeah. you know at the beginning of this film and the woman she's wearing like a pink coat over her like satin gown that's also like light pink right already so it's like here we are the man and with his leather jacket and then like the the fragile gentle woman who is like you know, basically has almost translucent skin. She's like so pale throughout throughout much of this movie. This like I was also thinking about the fact that both of these movies are about people like getting under each other's skin, uh, just very literally in Anatomy of Hell. Yeah. But again, another element of the rules that I think is there's a stylistic flourish in the pharmacy that I think sort of sets up whether this is a distancing effect, but a way we can engage with the rest of the movie. And after the woman has been tended to, after she like you use the razor blades on her wrists, there's an image where the man looks at her. And we get this close-up of the woman as she takes the razor blade and draws it across her throat. And she slits her throat and it just starts bleeding. And we cut back to the man who is just kind of like, okay, and and nods. And then they walk out together, and she's not bleeding. It didn't happen. This was something he saw. It was like this projection of her internal state, maybe. Like, that's one way it could be read. It's a short film, so all of the little things that happen with it, I think, are very important in terms of the way it guides the way the film can be read. And to me, for Bria to very clearly at the beginning of the film give us a reality bending moment 
what is perception here? This is a movie about people looking at each other, mm -hmm. and already we have something unreliable. We have something that isn't literally happening within the world of the film. So again, taking it all further, by the time we get in this room and we see some of this extremely explicit stuff on display, she's teaching us how to read her movie about having to deal with it on a symbolic level. Like you can't just take all of these hardcore displays at face value. You can't just accept the surface of this because otherwise you'll lose your fucking mind. <laughs> you have to, you do have to go deeper. You have to like peel away the layers and explore under the skin of this film to at least try to decipher what on earth is going on in it. Yes. Yes. And, and that again, I think is helpful for guiding viewers into it because you know i mean hell look even even before that you know the film does open with a a preface like a title card that's trying to like right i i don't i, I, I don't want to say like caution the viewers but 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 just sort of like already kind of establishing a sort of break in reality by pointing out that you know, hey, in the in the very explicit scenes, uh, doubles were used. You know, so it's already sort of like breaking the illusion of its of its, you know, construction by by saying like, hey, look, these are actors, and and they got into a room, and and there's going to be some extreme stuff you're going to experience. Uh, but but we did have doubles for the most. I think it's is like intimate parts, right? <laughs> for the most intimate moments, and it's like obviously. It the double is just for the woman because Rocco is, you know, his full girth is on display. There's no double for Rocco oh, yeah. at any point in this movie. Yeah. The, yeah, the, the most intimate scenes where we have extreme close-ups of the vagina in the film, that is apparently not the actress. Um, mm -hmm. Thank God. <laughs> but, and you know, you know it's <laughs> funny, I, I read again, like an interview with Brayot where, where the, the, the interviewer like brought that up and, you know, was bringing up this idea of the doubles and, you know, well, you know, the, the title card and all that stuff. And, and Brayot said that, well, really the, the biggest thing was contractually the, the actress, uh, she just wanted it to be made explicitly clear that she herself did not have sex with Rocco Sifredi. <laughs> so, <Right. laughs> you know, so I don't know how much of that is just Brayot like trolling and, and also like just trying to be funny, but, but she was like, yeah, the actress just wanted people to know that like, Rocco didn't give her the full rock, I guess. <laughs> but, but it, you know, yeah, it's, it is again, and it's, it's for Brea, like she, she wants us to, to, to embrace the, the fantasy of, of all of this. And, and that doesn't look, I'll be honest, like it doesn't make it easier to, to experience this film or to, to watch oh, no. this film. It, it just gives you, I think an ability to um, to perhaps like not be so man. I was gonna say scared, but but she wants us to be scared. I mean, it's I very so, clear yeah. she wants us to be scared. So so it's it is yeah. It's it's a weird. It's a it's a sort of weird thing to really kind of chart because Brea wants us to be upset. She wants us to be uncomfortable. She wants us to. To, to wiggle in our, our chairs uh, quite a bit. And, you know, that's why for me, I go back to that, that one word, unwatchable. And, mm -hmm. and I think there's a lot of discourse about what 
the word means and what that phrase even means to watch me when I'm unwatchable. And, and you of course pointed out the IMDB trivia about right. <laughs> their, their take on it. But I think there's, there, there are multiple ways of, of reading that particular line and that idea that's going to play out through the film of, of unwatchable and, and really like unwatchable also refers to, to us uh, watching the film and and watching what what perhaps we would consider to be a a watchable movie a watchable viewing experience for for us that that Bray is inviting us the audience to to watch the unwatchable to 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 go places we don't think we're supposed to go that's that's very very that's very clear to me anyway, that, that, you know, this idea is, is on a certain level to create a film that questions, you know, is there such a thing as an, an unwatchable film, right? You know, yeah. can a film really be unwatchable? And she is, is trying to take us right to that, that precipice. She's daring us. That's why too, for you, you know, earlier when you were saying, you know, and, and two characters, but maybe there's a third character in the voiceover. And I was like, well, the third character is us in the room with them, perhaps. Uh, Because we are taken so, so, so close uh, to these people and to their bodies and their body parts, you know, that we are. The only way we could get closer is if there was like a doctor's camera that was put inside of one of their bodies. You know? We get pretty damn close to that. Uh, that's for sure. That's for, that is. It's not for lack of trying. Maybe just no. equipment. <laughs> um, what you said though about these qualities making the film easier to watch in a certain way, I, I see what you mean though, because I think that the film would be harder to watch if we were trying to read these people as certain types of characters with certain types of psychologies, as opposed to understanding that the film is like a series of symbols and symbolic characters that are very like representative of like in a broad spectrum here because these people don't really talk to each other like people do you know like this is the kind of movie where everything that comes out of each character's mouth is like a broad philosophical musing you know, like, I don't mm-hmm. want to call it didactic because I don't necessarily think it is. And I think that's maybe a way to, like, diminish what she's doing here. But I do think that these people don't talk to each other the way that <laughs> that we're talking to each other right now. You know, the two of us here, like, this is these two people are, like, speaking boxes for concepts and mm-hmm. ideas about women, about misogyny, about gender. And it's that synthesis then that that's what the film is, is taking these ideas, putting them in some sort of order, and then confronting us with such explicit and radical images that we then have to try and make meaning both of what they're saying and also like how it makes us feel as someone in the room watching this. Because we really are the third character, I think. I think that's very clear the way, the way you described it, because the film is about looking and the film is very aware, even with its initial disclaimer, that we are here looking at it and we Mm -hmm. are complicit in everything that is happening on screen whether we like it or not Mm -hmm. yeah i mean boy it is (laughs) it it really is an assault i mean it is it is one of the most 
oppressive and assaulting experiences I've I've ever had, you know? And it's funny because when we were like, uh, when both of us were like kind of throwing the ideas around and titles around for the topic back and forth, like, okay, well, what is a film of just two people? And, and you know, I think even both of us at some point were like, well, Antichrist, you know, Antichrist uh, is only two people, basically, <laughs> yeah. right? Also, I think just the man and the woman in yeah. that film, too. And, and, you know, props to Sherman, our, our guest host from last week, who made the great joke that, no, there's a third character. It's the little kid at the beginning who jumps out the window or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, you know, I was thinking about Antichrist. And I was like, oh, gosh, man, I don't know if I can handle Antichrist again. <laughs> and I was like, and then we ended up watching this. And I got to say... This made Antichrist for me feel like, you know, uh, fuck, a Steven Spielberg film on a certain Truly. level. I mean, yeah, it makes it feel like a walk in the park. Yeah, yeah. Um, because this really is like a, 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 a caustic, uh, in your face uh, attack. And, and I have to say, for me, you know, I was, I was of course, I think it's inevitable if you if you encounter this film um, and you're in any way, shape, or form familiar with Laura Mulvey's concept of you know the male gaze in cinema. This is, I think, for me and what I've seen, uh, and I have plenty more to watch out there. But I, I might go on a limb and say that that this is, for me, like the the best the best example I have the most explicit example I have now for a film that confronts the male gaze in cinema. Uh, you know, there's specifically a concept in there for Mulvey in her essay um, where she talks about, well, how do we counter the male gaze? You know, once she sort of lays it out clinically and psychologically and she lays out the history and the processes involved and, and you know, how cinema became like the male gaze... Uh, you know, when she gets into the essay of like, well, well, how then do we counter the male gaze? How then do we challenge the male gaze? She has a passage. Destruction of pleasure as a radical weapon. And mm. for me, that concept there, you know, I've often grappled with that. Okay, and I, I sometimes in my classes work with my students when we read that essay together and I go, okay, well, yeah. well can you conceive of what that, that looks like? Destruction of pleasure as a radical weapon in cinema. Um, I now thanks to this film, have the perfect example for destruction of pleasure as a radical weapon. My goodness, God, that's what's going on here. Yes. Everything about this film and, you know, diving more into Brea and reading interviews and, and, and hearing from, from her own words, you know, what, her mission is uh, and has been, and this is the only Breya film I've I've seen. I've, I'm of course like familiar with some of her other films. Like I think Romance is another like really big one that caused quite a stir. Rocco's also in that, yeah. Yeah, and Rocco's in that one. Um, and uh, you know, this film I I almost watched this years ago, um, and I don't remember why. But but to be honest with you, I think this was streaming for a little while on Shutter. Because uh, Shudder, Shudder as a streaming channel, whatever, you can get on like Amazon Prime for those. I'm sure plenty of people yeah, are familiar yeah. with Shudder. Shudder, I think, is, is super cool because Shudder has like, yeah, just like, you know, horror schlock. But Shudder also has a lot of like, they, they also get a lot of like weird art house European shit. Yeah, you know, Breya 
it talks a lot about that, you know, this idea of being like, well, you know, uh, I'm not making art house porn. I, I hate porn. You know, my films are an attempt at, at sort of confronting pornography, confronting the pornographic and, and confronting for her, the sort of like inherent creepiness of the way, uh, sex and erotica are used in cinema and, and particularly like mainstream cinema, what's acceptable for her, you know, she sees just like the, the sort of like throwaway nudity, uh, that we find in so many, male gaze films, films directed and written by men, uh, produced by men who, you know, let's be honest, you know, the Roger Cormans of the world who are like, but can you get some tits in there too, right? Just just that sort of like throwaway nudity of women. Uh, and, and she is like, that shit's what's really fucked up. You know, that is the real perversion out there. My films aren't perverted. My films are, are honest, yeah, I mean, even a radical way of reframing that, too, is she sees that type of nudity and that type of sexualization and um, eroticism in film as being something that is obscene. Mm-hmm. And there's a moment where the man says to her, you know, speaking of woman, your denial of obscenity is what frightens us. And thinking about the way this film evokes that type of fear by having pleasure stripped away from it, and then even further thinking about Catherine treating everything on display here like none of this is obscene. And then it's like that internalized pain that is on display in this film. So it's not obscene. It's this pain that they're dealing with. It's too real. And maybe that's what Rocco is referring to when he says, like, that frightens us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because it is frightening and it is supposed to be frightening and it is horror. This film is like, again, new French extremity art horror. I mean, I I came across a really funny piece on this film that Armand White wrote, uh, like, when the film came out. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) It's very funny as a time capsule because the way Armand writes about movies, obviously, is in response to, like, the shit he was watching that week, everything he's on assignment for. So, like, in this piece, I mean, thinking, imagine this. You've got a piece of critical writing on Catherine Brias anatomy of hell. And he somehow brings in a reference to the Bernie Mac movie, Mr. 3000. <laughs> <laughs> if that's not a time capsule for like a galaxy brain, 2004 film criticism, I, I can't think of anything else. Oh my God. But you know, he, he opens it with, he says, the only sign of protest I saw at Catherine Brias anatomy of hell came when an, elderly woman got up and walked out of the screening. It was during the scene where Rocco Sifredi crept into the bedroom of his female sex partner, carrying a garden hoe as if he were about to swing an axe. As he inserted the implement's wrong end into his partner's back end, the elderly audience member booked out of there. She didn't get Bria's joke. (laughs) And then... You know, go off, King. Right. <laughs> he does say a bunch of crazy things. And then what's crazy, too, though, is it seems like he doesn't like the film because he talks about her not having progressed 
beyond certain like hangups she has. He says it's anatomy of hell is hung up on the same resentment of the bra burning era. Wow. And he says this would be excusable in a young filmmaker, but 56 year old Catherine Briah should know better. Whoa. And it's like easy dude. <laughs> There's Armand White. There you go. Yeah. There, there he is. Like, yeah, he's arrived. The one line that did make me like burst out laughing though, um, and this is just like a, you know, here we are, everybody, we're starting to get into the nitty gritty of some of this shit. Uh, but he says, this old fashioned feminism is often laughable, as in the girl's tampon speech. <sighs> Feel the hygiene of the absorbent cotton. It sounds like ad copy. Although, when they drink blood, you wish they had a V8 or at least cranberry juice. <laughs> it's like, oh my fucking God. <laughs> yeah. For, for our listeners who, who, you know, might even never go watch this film, uh, we should perhaps give you a little bit of context about that. There is, yeah. you know... Again, in these moments of what you have, I think, rightfully like labeled like new French extremism, Ryan, there is, uh, you know, a scene in which uh, the the woman uh, removes a a used tampon uh, from her from her vagina and uh, places it in a glass of of water, and then you know once it's it's uh it's done its thing once it's steeped into dracula tea uh the <laughs> the man and the woman both uh drink from it yeah tiens bois And it is kind of like an advertisement, the way it's shot, like the way the glass is held up and it's lit. It's all very clear for us to see. It does feel like an advertisement for for that cocktail. And, you know, it, it made me think of another like crazy connection between these two movies where I was like imagining both of these films as proposing two opposite ends of a spectrum of a game of would you rather because when like we'll we'll go over the details of this a little bit later but like when sergey and pasha are like butting heads and like really going after each other when it's reached like a cataclysmic crisis between the two of them there is this like i mean maybe i'll have you just describe that like this device that i don't really know what it is but it's like radiation is like like reeking from it right it's just like seeping into the air the geiger counter goes nuts whenever you stand over this thing and at one point pavel as an act of revenge like essentially roasts a bunch of pieces of arctic trout over this radiation so it gets soaked in it and then as a form of revenge delivers this arctic trout and replaces it with the um sergey's like nice collection of like that day's eats and i was thinking about these films as like a game of would you rather like would you rather have irradiated arctic trout or would you prefer to have a like menstrual cocktail um I mean, obviously, the menstrual cocktail. I don't want to, like, die. Yes. Uh, I don't think that's a game anybody wants to play, but... Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I was thinking about that, you know, when I when I finished watching both of the films, you know, like, okay, which of these two experiences would I have rather have been locked into? You know, which of the... the, the just the two of us kind of uh, moments... <laughs> 
would I have survived better? <laughs> I think, and, uh, I think the, the, the simple answer for me is neither. I don't think I would have survived either of these. Yeah. I'd rather be in the safe space of the gauntlet talking about those experiences uh, outside of my own lived experience. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. Because yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, well, in both of these films, the, the, the pairs are, are forever, forever marked by uh, what they uh, go through. So, yeah, um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how else to... Um, it sucks for, for both uh, groups that we've, uh, we've engaged right. with here. But I guess, you know, in Anatomy of Hell's certain rejection of standard character psychology, I, I, am, I am a little interested in your perspective on some of the character psychology in How I Ended This Summer. Because the the central event in this film for our listeners is when Sergei is out fishing for this Arctic trout that would later, you know, cause some some issues back at camp. Pavel is left alone and he gets a message on the radio um, from the base. And after delaying it for quite a bit, saying like, oh, he's out like refueling stuff or he's taking a nap or et cetera, et cetera, covering for his coworker who's not really supposed to be out fishing for multiple days at a time. The, the radio transmitter decides to let the intern know the sensitive information, what's going on. And he gives him a message to pass on to Sergey that Sergey's wife and son have been, in a long pause, gravely injured. And it's quite clear that they are dead. And then the meat of this film is Pasha being afraid to tell Sergei this information, and he's withholding it. And I understand it to a certain extent because I often think about, like, when I go on, like, a little trip or something, and I've got people watching my cat, like, if something horrible were to happen, I, I, I wouldn't want to know until I got back because there's nothing I could do about it, right? Like, if there was a disaster, like, if there was something I could do, then I would like to know. But if it was inevitable, like if the cat died, like it jumped out a window or something, or something horrible happened, like I, I would rather I lived in ignorant bliss until I got back and then like I could productively do something about it, I guess. So I understand his instinct at first to be like, well, we're waiting for them to come pick up Sergey. I'm not going to tell him that his fucking wife and son are dead because then I got to hang out with this guy who's just going to be miserable and panicking. Well, and... There's, there's, I think there's a little bit more to it, right? Um, and this is, you know, the way that the film is constructed. Uh, one thing that I found really interesting in um, listening to an interview with the director is that the structure even for shooting was linear. Uh, that, you know, it, I'm sure most people are very familiar that usually when a movie's made, it's shot out of sequence. You know, you shoot based on convenience and permits and... And locations, yeah. Right, all those kinds of things. Um, but for them, you know, they... He he referred to the making of this film as an expedition. You know, the, the actual production as an expedition because they really did just, like, scout these locations, find this region, and, like, go there and, and exist there for, for however long it took them to make the film. And he really, you know, consciously decided... I think it would be great to to make this in sequence to like film this relationship unfolding or I guess unraveling like in sequence for for the actors. So there is a lot of 
like tension that's that's sort of slowly building to this moment mm -hmm. and this really is like the the like central sort of like turning point for you know this is really the the pulling of the thread that's going to start this 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 whole uh tightly wound cohabitation like completely like unraveling unfurling um but just prior to this moment that you've described, you know, when when Pavel's got this like bad news to deliver to Sergei, like they're already having like a confrontation. And, you know, part of it happens because Sergei leaves to go on this fishing trip and is basically like, look, I'm going to leave you here with this responsibility. You got to make sure that you take down, you know, every four hours these readings okay like and you do it by hand and pasha's like well we got the fucking computer so like who you know blah 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 why, why do we need to why do i need to get up and go out and do what you do every couple hours old man like that's what the goddamn system i've set up is for and on sergey's fishing trip when he leaves pavel alone like he sleeps through his alarm and he forgets to take a bunch of readings, you know, analog readings. Mm -hmm. And, and when Sergei gets back from his, from his little, you know, fishing trip, he discovers that, you know, that like, Whoa, this little fucking asshole. I know he what he did. Yeah. yeah. He fucked up and he is so mad and he delivers this awesome like monologue where he explains like the history you know, like, okay, Boomer, right? Where yeah. he goes through the history of this station. This 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 particular house that we're in was built in 1935. Families used to live here, you know? It was a community. And the one thing, no matter how hard our existence was, no matter how tough things got, we always took the fucking readings, you know? He gives them this whole thing. And then, like, the, the cherry on top is, is basically, like, when he tells him, people have fucking died out here and not just from polar bears eating them you know there was the there were these two guys and one day one of them just got so sick of the other he fucking shot him you know and so Pavel's like whoa i'm terrified i mean he's terrified of sergey he's so scared of him and and it's like right after this moment where where you know you could basically say sergey more or less said like I could kill you out here and no one would even know. No one would blink, right? That's the moment when he's like, maybe now is not the best time to tell him, <laughs> you know? But it also, I mean, like, the, the, the radio guys who give him the message, they know who Sergei is as well, you know? Because the guy also plants that seed in his head. He says, like, yeah, give him this message and then leave him alone. Let him be. Get away from him. You know, don't worry. There'll be a boat to get you in five days. You just got to make it five days. Stay away from him. So, like, Pavel's fucking terrified, you know, of, of, of giving him that message in that particular moment. And he thinks, you know, in his immaturity, in his, in his you know, whatever, his wishy-washy quality uh, that he kind of has, he thinks, like, okay, I'll, I'll find the right time yeah to give him the, the message <laughs> but and this is where like then the drama continues to sort of build uh, unfortunately for for pasha 
there is no right time to tell Sergei that his wife and child, who he keeps bringing up very lovingly, and yeah. it, it seems to us that that the idea of his wife and child are the only thing keeping this guy alive, keeping this guy like motivated. There is no right time to tell him that those things are gone when they are on this barren strip of Arctic land with guns and knives around, <laughs> you know, there, there is no, no right time to tell him. And so this continues to extend throughout, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. I will say, you know, there may not be a right time, uh, but without, you know, getting too far ahead of ourselves, when he does tell him, it feels like the exact wrong time. Like oh, of all the, yeah, of all yeah. the, the wrong times that are available, the, 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 the like tactless way that he eventually drops this bomb on Sergey, just at one point, he just like yells like your wife and child are dead. Yeah. <laughs> like, it is like this eruption of this pent-up secret that he had like that moment is like psychotic and i guess like i'm glad you clarified some of this for me because maybe i didn't read sergey as intense as certainly pasha did you know like he didn't seem to me like the kind of guy that would erupt in a powder keg of violence even though that kind of does happen um so i maybe it was this was just like me misreading this guy's face i guess part of it too is these guys look so like so clean throughout the movie you know they're really well groomed and taken care of you know you had brought up you know in the in the pre-chatter like the lighthouse you know and and those guys don't look very clean you know they got the salt and brine you know it's really wearing them down they look rough they're dirty mm-hmm. guys but you know sergey like I, I get that he's yeah the, the, that tension with this like you know his old way of thinking but he does seem you know he's like cleaned up he's taking care of himself the guys have a schwitz together i can't believe it's taken us so long to to get to the schwitz i'm thinking about the two of us right this film has this a great like russian sauna scene that reminded me so much of you and me going to the russian sauna watching everybody getting whipped on the back with the you know the, the, the sauna whisks the leaves yeah it was yeah. awesome i was losing it when it was them in the sauna and Sergey's like really coming down hard yeah. on pavel you know he's like putting him in his place <laughs> i love it because the sauna scene comes like after a moment when Sergey is sort of like you know he's 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 mad like you know it's it's after like Pavel's kind of fucked up. So then Sergei basically is like, to the sauna, like it's a punishment, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and he does, like, take him in there. Pavel's a little, like, nervous to get in the sauna, you know? Like, he's kind of just sitting outside of it, sort of like, oh, boy, what's going to happen in the sauna? And Sergei's like, come on, like, what the fuck? What do you think's going to happen in there? You know, this ain't a Catherine Breya film. Just get in the goddamn <laughs> sauna. <laughs> А ты что тут? Чё целку вдруг стал строить, а? Да нужен ты мне. Давай, пошли. Давай, давай, давай. But then, like, when he's in the sauna, it's this just awesome shot of, like, Pavel just sort of, like, laying down and Sergei just beating him with those leaves and it's it's just yeah it's this it's this like you know like this sort of punishment moment uh being in that like hot ass 
banya and, and just getting like whipped. And like Sergey is even saying like, are you going to keep diddling around here? Are you going to keep fucking up? Or are you going to learn your lesson? Yes. Yes. You know, I mean, like there are these little moments of, of like violence that do happen. Yeah. I mean, he does like whack Pavel quite a few times when he screws up. Um, and I think that's also like a part of like how, how a lot of, what's happening is inferred. A lot of it is very subtle. Mm. You know, it isn't just like in your face. It's a very sparse film in terms of dialogue. There isn't a lot of, of, you know, conversation that, that actually happens between the two of them. Yeah. There's probably less lines of dialogue spoken between the two of them in this like two hour and 10 minute movie or whatever than there is in the 77 minute anatomy of hell. I almost wonder if they, they probably say more in that. Yeah. Absolutely. But, the, but again, even with like Sergei, you know, like he, he represents uh, again, that like older Soviet way of, of doing things and of, of punishing transgressions. Uh, Sergei is wearing, uh, at various points underneath himself, you know, the striped shirt of someone who was in the Russian Navy. It's, 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 it's probably then also inferred, right, that he was a part of, at some point when he was young, the Russian military. And they have, again, a dis- different way of disciplining uh, things that go wrong. You know, I remember reading, you know, accounts of, of, of Russian soldiers, and they talk about how through their training, it's very different from, like, American training, certainly, like, how much physical... Uh, like corporal punishment is a big was a big part of like the Soviet system and like still kind of is today to a lesser extent. But it's it's so clear that that's not how Pavel uh, has existed in the more contemporary Russia. Totally. That, you know, Sergei is like, when you fuck up, I'm going to whack you like that's how you're going to learn. You you should be a little bit afraid of me so you don't screw things up. So, yes, this, of course, all compounds then into him going, well, if, if I totally shatter this guy's world and he seems like he has nothing left to hold on to, what is going to stop him from, from fucking killing me? And this, this, this is continuously going to build throughout the rest of the film and why he keeps sort of delaying delivering this, this message. And, and in spite of that, in spite of him not delivering the message, tension does build for other reasons and things do start to spiral out of control, you know, and I also loved it, you know, how it was, it was funny to me, you know, I kept thinking of myself as like a little kid and, and that's really what's going on here, you know, on a very human level, it took me back to childhood, you know, and it's like when you do something wrong, you know, when you screw something up, uh, like, you know, you break a lamp and it's like, do you tell your parents you as a child, you know, you <laughs> yeah, get this, yeah. this mindset of, of being like, well, shit, if I don't tell them, if they never find out about it, I can't be punished for it. Right. But ultimately mm. it's that decision, the decision to either lie or hide your, your accident, your indiscretion, your, your whatever, right. It's, it's that, it's that hiding that ultimately, from the parents' perspective, uh, makes things so much worse because it feels like a betrayal, you know, a betrayal of trust. And for Sergei, even though he is this sort of like gruff relic of the Soviet era, 
the only way, and he makes that very clear to Pavel, like that we can exist out here is if we trust each other. If I can go off and, and, and fish to blow off a little bit of steam and I can trust that while I'm gone, you're not just going to fucking play, you know, uh, Tarkov. <laughs> yeah. Escape from Tarkov. You know, if we want to be rushing about it or, or call of duty or whatever, and, yeah, and yeah. forget to go do the fucking readings. Like it's about trust. So right here we're seeing like that betrayal of trust. Uh, we, as the audience, of course, are like just writhing the whole time every moment when he would when when pavel would get back on the radio and the the guy at hq is like did you tell him yet what the fuck tell him you know like don't screw around and pavel keeps going well you know uh Maybe we shouldn't tell him at all. What do you think? You know, and the guy's like, no, this is fucking wife and child. This isn't a game. You got to fucking tell him, man. And you're only making it worse by not telling him, you know, and mm. that's that's really for me. I think on, on, on a simple level, why I was able to really like just just connect with this movie on a human level, yeah. because like we've all been here. This, of course, is taking it to such a, a, an extreme place, though. Right. This idea of of punishment and, and our fear of punishment and, and how we react to that, you know? I love when Pavel thinks then, I, especially with this way of reading it as a child trying to hide something from his parents. I love when the radio operators mention like, we're going to send in a helicopter and I'm going to need you to like go out there, bring some flares. The weather's going to get bad. So you can like signal to us and we can come and get you. And I love that. It's so much exactly like how you're describing. He's like a child who has found an out. Mm -hmm. He's like, Oh, thank God. Like I don't have to <laughs> confront this. I can just rearrange all of this to make it seem like this is brand new news. And the helicopters here, they can take the brunt of Sergei's like sadness and yeah. rage. What's he going to do? Shove me out of the helicopter. We'll have witnesses. He can't do you know? <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> and then that of course then doesn't work out either which is a really cool sequence i mean just like that arctic fog and that intense weather that is so unique to that space it was really neat when he is like out there on the tundra looking for the helicopter and it's really when the weather turns and it becomes so dense with the fog and maybe some snow and just like ice kind of like blowing really thinly through the air and we can't see the helicopter and he lights the the flare and i mean he maybe walks yeah. 10 feet from the camera mm -hmm. and already it's hard to see the flare you know which i thought was really impressive like that's how intense this this weather was so it's like of course the helicopter can't see him Sis! and then immediately after that what was so like evocative for me too was he's like bummed and he's like shit and he's sort of standing around and, and he sees a polar bear in the way out in the distance and it's man dear god i mean like it would be stunning and beautiful and spiritual to see a polar bear in the wild but it was just me and a polar bear like within eyes distance and i like didn't have 
any form of transportation, I would just like buckle and panic. Very, that's much more worse than as I'd said, you know, the other day when Molly and I saw a rattlesnake out on the trail and it like shook at us and it was like, watch out. Um, I could handle that. Yeah. I could not handle a polar bear. Well, (laughs) I mean, and and again, Sergey made that very clear to him. You know, you're never to leave without a rifle, without a weapon, because those polar bears will kill you and eat you. It happened a few years ago, you dumbass, you know? So it's like the threat, of course, has also been planted for us, you know, that this isn't just a majestic animal, but this is a predator that will tear you to fucking shreds like a, like a little salmon, you know, it just pulled out a river. But, but yeah, you know, I'm glad you brought that up as well. You know, the sequence with the fog, because again, like the more I got into the the story of, of how this film was made, the more I was really just sort of uh, in awe of, of this and sort of jealous of the experience of making this film because, you know, um, the director, Papa Grebsky, like talked about how, again, as I mentioned already, um, they, they wanted to shoot in sequence, but a lot of the, the, the natural occurrences that we see in this film that just seem so perfect considering the moment and considering what's going on with the characters and their relationship, they sort of happen spontaneously uh, sure. and they would roll with them. You know, he, he talked about how for me, you know, he's like, I would sort of get up that day and I would look at what we have in terms of the weather and we would start to sort of craft things working with what's oh, happening. Wow. And he like talked about those moments with the fog where it was like, suddenly they just had to shift and, and just, just create something with the fog that would suddenly roll in. And, you know, there's another great moment, um, in, in the film where, you know, at a certain point they are beset upon by mosquitoes, like hundreds of mosquitoes yeah. and you see them and, and, and Pavel is just like fucking, Oh my God. You know, if you've ever, you know, if you live in the Midwest and you've been, you know, in any sort of forested area in the summer, and not just the Midwest, I guess you could say, but anywhere where you get a ton of mosquitoes, uh, then you know the fucking irritation and the pain that Pavel's going through. And he's just like, he can't concentrate because he's just being being just absolutely like enshrouded by, by these mosquitoes. And yet Sergei is like not reacting at all to them. You know, he's just like, hey, mm-hmm. you dumbass, focus. And the director said those mosquitoes just suddenly set upon them when they were filming that scene. That mosquito stuff wasn't in the scene at all. But suddenly he's like, all of a sudden we're all just like, just like he's like a, a million mosquitoes just, just, just swarmed us. And he quickly said, okay, we're going to do this scene. And he said to, to the actor who plays Sergei, the older guy, he goes, okay, you're not affected by the mosquitoes. And they just ran with it, you know, because you That's see incredible. that in, you know, what, what's happening there. And, and, you know, when I was hearing him tell these stories, I was thinking so much of, of something that, that, that Rivette once said. And I've probably brought this up in the past because it's one of my favorite quotations by a, by a filmmaker, favorite ideas, I guess, because I'm going to paraphrase it. But, but, you know, mm. when he was talking about his process for making films, he was saying, well, look, every film is an adventure film. And if, if films are inherently like adventures, you know, our experience of, of watching them, Shouldn't we also make the production an adventure? Shouldn't the making of the film for us also be an adventure, right? And and ultimately in the whole cinematic experience then, like, it's it's all adventure, right? Making a film is an adventure. Seeing a film is an adventure. And, and in this case, like this film, I mean, wow, holy shit. 
this was an adventure for them. And, and I, I think that that really does translate on film, like just watching it without knowing the stuff. Like it is a breathtaking film. It, it just shows a, a deep connection to the, the space that they're in, you know, like the, the polar bear thing you brought up. Like uh, I saw a, a, an interview with the filmmaker where he was saying like, we were fighting off polar bears basically while we were making it. And <laughs> he had, sure. he had personal footage. He was like, you know, my, my cinematographer and I, we lived in this like small shack and this young polar bear became fascinated by us and it was coming closer and closer to us every day. And one night he said it had its paws up on the window, right where the cinematographer slept. They saw in the morning and it was like, okay, we got to do something about this. They had footage of them making torches at a certain point and like running at this young polar bear and waving the torches at it to scare it off. So it was fascinating to me to think of like how much the making of this film replicated like what we're actually seeing on screen, right. like what what actually happens in in the film. So, you know, there's another moment when you described, you know, much later when Pavel like really fucks up and he does deliver the, the, the devastating news at the worst possible moment, uh, where he like runs away, you know, and, and he's, he's, he's definitely like afraid for his life at this point. Shots are exchanged. Gunfire is exchanged, you know, by, by both parties, you know, at a certain point, you know, on one of these cliffs, uh, Pavel like jumps off the edge of this cliff and is like sliding down this mountain and it is like holy shit when you watch it you're like there's no stuntman there like that actor really did yeah. just slide down that mountain and and again from a from a like a, a just a sort of like physical spectacle the sort of like realism of that moment i mean it's yeah yeah i mean the realism is is so captivating throughout i mean it doesn't surprise me that the mosquitoes were real it reminded me have you seen the herzog um happy people a year in the taiga yes mm -hmm. yeah that you remember that amazing scene when they like make that tar that they then coat themselves with that becomes this like insane mosquito repellent i was mm -hmm. thinking about how like those guys like if you're out in the arctic you probably would need something like that, like in, just inherent to the survival of being outside, <laughs> yeah. you know. But I, even thinking about Armand describing the menstrual cocktail in Anatomy of Hell as like an advertisement for V8 juice, the reality <laughs> at times of the, the work on display in this movie, it captured my attention so much that I almost felt like it seemed like it would be my dream job, specifically oh, yeah. just what Sergei was doing, knowing how all of these tools work, being in this beautiful space, this reality, and just dealing with it all. Like this film felt like an advertisement for this job, I almost at times wished I was like, maybe this is the path I should have taken, been a, been a weather guy, you know? I thought the exact same thing. <laughs> yeah. But I guess so, like, yeah, there is lots of reality on display. Yeah, and it's, again, I think it's a, it's a, in a weird way, it's an interesting connection between both of the films, right? Is like how much emphasis is placed in both of these productions on sort of like, for lack of a better term, not faking it, right? In, right. in like being explicit in the case of Anatomy of Hell and and even if a body double was used. Uh, it's still not like a rubber device, you know? That's a yeah. woman's vagina that's having lipstick 
drawn around it is having you know when Rocco Sifridi's rock hard dick is like <laughs> just like soaked in menstrual blood like that's not a prosthetic penis right like that's that's him yeah that's the full Sifridi that's the full Sifridi <laughs> it is funny when there are like moments though like there's so much reality that when things have to be faked it's like kind of funny it and specifically the um, like vaginal discharge in the film, the way it's so goopy in it. It, it, when when Rocco dips his finger into the vagina very early on, and like his finger is just glistening with a huge dollop of lube on it, you know. And then it, it reminded me of another new French extreme movie, Claire Denis' Trouble Every Day, which is a film that's so intense and so visceral and so. It feels too real at times. There's always that moment I think of that is just so phony and so funny when Vincent Gallo is jerking off and his ejaculation is so strong that it splatters all over the wall. (laughs) And it looks like Claire Denis had a giant jug of lotion was just like pounding down the dispenser (laughs) because it's like an absolutely obscene amount. Yeah, it's too much pressure behind that as well. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. But, you know... the the one moment that because I was going to ask you, you know, like of all the things that are on display in Anatomy of Hell, maybe when were you most provoked? What was the thing that really grabbed you? And I almost I don't want to make an assumption. I feel like we probably had the same the same moment. But I guess I'll just like describe mine. The, the moment I was most uncomfortable and most challenged as a viewer and really felt ill-equipped to like handle or defend, I guess. And that is the the flashback, mm. you know, and that's like when these things get so difficult is when children are involved because we yeah. do get two flashbacks in the film. One is spurred by like a really remarkable metaphor that she uses to like get to the heart of misogyny in the perspective of the male gaze, as we said, where when we return to the man's past, it's because he's looking at the vagina and he says it reminds him, or at least in his mind, Catherine says it reminds him of a newborn bird. More flesh than feathers get this really haunting flashback where he he picks up some birds from a nest, newborn birds, and he puts it in his breast pocket. And by the time he climbs down from this tree, this little, like, 11-year-old boy, it's, his breast pocket's bloodied. And instead of being sad about it, he throws it on the ground and just squishes it, just mm-hmm. stomps down, spreads that baby bird all over the, the gravel. Um, really haunting. And then... The woman's flashback, this was, I mean, this was like the most, to me, the most provocative moment of the movie when we get the the children playing doctor. And I mean, I can imagine how she shot it and maybe, you know, you have to wonder how she described it to the children. But that was, you know, as Marsh described, I've heard Marsh describe Catherine Bria as edgelord Catherine. And that mm-hmm. is, you know, that is the purest expression of of that yeah it's i think it's hard for me to chart like a single moment a singular moment i mean i i started to get vocal while i was watching this movie i'm not kidding i was sitting here and i started to go oh no 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 (laughs) no it's like (laughs) when i saw things coming uh i i you know was i i was i was really um 
I was making some noises. Yeah, much like my father did when we watched Antichrist together. When I was in high school, I wanted to see that movie so bad. And I, he knew what it was about, but the only way we were like going to agree to watch it, he's like, I'll have to watch it with you, son. Uh-oh. It was a wild night, a very funny and memorable one. But I remember him when the, the moment with the scissors was coming up. He like got out of his chair and he couldn't look away. And he was just, he was so noisy. He was like gesturing at the screen. He just wanted it to be over. He wanted to like never have to deal with it again. Yeah, yeah shout out to my father for... For going on that journey with me, I certainly would never make him watch Anatomy of Hell. Yeah, just just the two of you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I I think for me the 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 scene that was perhaps, and we've already sort of talked about it. I mean, Armand White, um, I think laid it out quite nicely. Uh, the scene with the 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 hoe, the garden tool, when uh, Rocco comes back in with it, and then you know inserts it into the woman and just leaves it there and it is just like sticking out of her at like a very awkward angle and then uh leaves the room that that was really tough for me um mm-hmm. because it just felt so violating and so violent uh that that sort of form of of penetration but i also found it to be one of the the funniest moments for me and and that's simply because of you know, the next day we sort of cut uh, to like the next morning and the woman uh, is then talking to the man and, and saying, you know, I get the impression that you wanted to kill me last night and and you fought that urge well, didn't you? And I was thinking, damn, what gave it away? Was that you waking up with a garden tool <laughs> shoved up inside of you? Like, come on, man. <laughs> you know, like, I agree. I think, you know, my coping mechanism for that was also reading it because it's such an assault, but like kind of reading it as somewhat humorous. To me, it felt like her most perverse joke, the mm-hmm. image of the garden hoe like sticking out. But to me, I was like, if if Catherine Briah ever drew a political cartoon addressing the inherent misogyny in like the Western world, to me that would be the cartoon she'd draw. Yeah. So like to me, the way that was made a little more palatable to me was it it really felt like a gesture of extremely dark satire. Mm-hmm. And that's again really the way to to I think survive this viewing experience is mm-hmm. to. Uh, understand that element, you know, understand the, yeah, you know, in, in Marsh's, I guess, terms, uh, the, the sort of really edgelord uh, trolling that that's going on here. I remember recently uh, there was a really great series uh, at the Music Box Theater here in Chicago called Highs and Lows. It was put together by these these two dudes who, you know, would pair like 90s gross out comedies with like, you know, high art European cinema, right? Highbrow cinema and lowbrow cinema and create these interesting pairings and double features. And uh, when they were showing Ali Feared's The Soul, one of the guys was introducing Fassbender's film by saying, well, you know, you know, the, the best way to uh, uh, like, like enter Fassbender's films uh, is by acknowledging that like in Fassbender's films, humans don't treat each other like any humans on the planet actually do. And I think we talked about that 
in our own way when we when we watched Martha, you know, that it's like mm-hmm. there's no humans <laughs> who interact with each other the way that they do in Fassbender's films. And like, that's the point. That's, you know, for Fassbender, that's where a lot of his humor comes from. And I, I think that's very much the same kind of mindset to, to take into this film and to other Brea films, right? It's going like, come on, like that, no human would do that and not probably be like thrown in jail for it afterwards or something like that. But like, that's, that's the point again, right? That's the, the really provocative aspect of the film that's, that's trying to, to acknowledge our presence, our role in this, our role in what's taking place here. Um, and again, you know, go back to that idea of like the unwatchable, this is Brea, like trying to take us right there and hopefully have us come out the other side with a newfound appreciation, a new way of looking at what we normally look at so passively. Right. Mm -hmm. A new way of sort of actively watching uh, and and questioning if maybe there are other things out there that we would describe as watchable. But now we might see them even as sort of unwatchable or that we will never be able to look at them the same way again, you know. Right. And I love I think it's near the end of the first night in Anatomy of Hell where the woman says to the man, she's almost chastising him for not earning his pay. She says, you haven't even been looking at me. Yeah. You know, you haven't been able to confront this. And me as the viewer, us as the viewer, the other complicit party in Anatomy of Hell, I mean, I couldn't look away. It's a film that's obviously designed to shock and provoke, but you, it's not something you'd like cover your eyes from, at least me as a viewer. Catherine <laughs> completely had me within her grasp, mm-hmm. you know? Like, I, I think this film confronts you, and like you have to, to deal with it when you experience it. And I guess that's something that is pretty common in like films about two people, and so much of it is that they refuse to look at each other. There's huge chunks of How I Ended the Summer where... Pavel can't bear to look at Sergei because of this information he's withholding that he has within him. Mm-hmm. And on the flip side too, like Sergei has a hard time looking at, at Pavel. Uh, yeah. Sergei just sees him as this just like, you know, incompetent young boob, you know, like he just, he has so much contempt for him because of his way of sort of, you know, as he put it, like diddling through this world, role playing. That's the the phrase he uses. You know, this isn't a, a game. You know, you you're just sort of like traipsing through this life uh, without seeing the bigger picture. And 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 both of them have a very hard time looking at each other and seeing each other. And again, that's the bigger point that is embedded within the film about you know, the generation gap and these two sides that, that cannot really see each other, you know, and they don't understand each other. They don't understand why they do what they do, you know, and that's even in, we see it in big ways and we see it in small ways. There's a really nice touch at a certain point when they go to an old, now abandoned Soviet military base that's up there in the, the Arctic Circle and, and, 
Sergei's like, come on, we got to look at all these barrels. Let's get some of this excess fuel that's just been left here since the 80s or whatever, right? Let's let's take some back with us. And Pavel's like, what the fuck? We have plenty of fuel back there. Why are you getting more? We've got enough to last us months. What he can't understand, right, is that Sergei's a man who understands how quickly everything can fall apart, how quickly right. your entire world can collapse, you know? Your, your, your political system can one day just suddenly close up shop. And he's sort of like always trying to think of, you know, of of putting things away for those moments, for those like apocalyptic moments, which are always on the horizon. But but yeah, you know, it's it's an inability to sort of see each other, to to look at each other, and and of course at the end of the film, after they've gone through all that they have, and we've already mentioned and alluded to, you know, how it sort of uh, comes to a terrible, terrible head when when Pavel. <laughs> you know, accidentally irradiates himself on this like isotope generating sort of like oh, battery. Man. And then, uh, you know, out of fear for his own life, thinks like, well, I've, I've got to poison him with this irradiated fish. And now they're both at the ending, like probably gonna die of radiation poisoning or something. And they, they have this sort of like embrace. And it's really that, that, that moment, you know, where where I think the filmmakers kind of sort of looking at contemporary Russia, very perhaps like cynically, but but also kind of hopefully at the same time, you know, like like what is our end game here, you know? Yeah. And I feel like with movies that center around two people, and I think we've talked about this, is how, you know, there is a whole world that's developed and it feels like any other world is so outside of this one that it feels like another planet if we're just stuck with two individuals for the majority of the film like this is the only world we know and then both of these films like many films with two people do end with suddenly the outside world returning Mm. And it is really shocking. So as you said, you know, when they do have that embrace and we're thinking about their future and the future of Russia, it's because people do arrive. The, you know, the boat has come. There are new faces, people we haven't seen at any point throughout the rest of the film. We've only had our two guys. Everyone wearing radiation hazmat suits, by the way, except <laughs> yeah, for them. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right. And yes, yeah, so they come to like, you know, pick, pick Pasha up and... It's like suddenly here are new people. Here is a world outside of this one we were stuck in. Yeah. And in Anatomy of Hell, when the man leaves, there is this really just insane scene. Jarring, yeah. Really, it's so intense to have like another figure in the film with a speaking role. He goes to a bar and he starts talking to this guy, this older guy, very grizzled, world weary, you know, just like sipping his beer up at the bar. And the man, Rocco, just starts talking about the depravities of the night before. Oh my God, it is, it is for a film that relies so heavily on just like long unbroken takes, you know, it's, it's very easy to sort of, you know, lose track of the editing choices, you know? And, and, but that cut is one of the best cuts I've ever seen in any film because man, after those four nights, whoo boy, after all that, we (laughs) just cut 
to this bar and it is a hard cut, a jarring cut to a man just downing a drink and then basically going, oh boy, right? You know, I mean, it is just on that moment when you as an audience are just thinking, Jesus Christ, I don't know how much more of this I can take. We just cut to basically him as if he's just finished telling the entire story of those four nights to this guy. And, and all that guy can do is just down his drink, order another one and say, this guy needs one too. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. Maybe one of honestly my favorite cuts I've ever seen in any movie. It's really incredible. And even within that conversation, that other man gives such an interesting performance because Rocco, our guy, the man, he, you know, he's saying the types of things you would hear misogynistic men sort of pass between each other at a bar. He's like, oh, like I fucked her until there was nothing left. Like I really reamed her. Like no one is ever going to want that woman again, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Just really revolting stuff. And the guy's like, oh, yeah, you know, you gotta, you gotta do stuff like that. But then, Rocco looks this guy in the face and he's like, he just starts saying, he starts giving actual evidence of we just watched. She's like, you know, I left her covered in like shit and piss. She was a wrecked creature. Like she wasn't even a human anymore. And even at that point, the other guy is just kind of just, he starts retreating within himself, you know, like, good Lord, dude, take it easy. Like, is that what happened? And when, when Rocco leaves, when he leaves, he leaves that man at the bar shaken. He is, he is deeply disturbed by the presence of the man and the information he just gave him. Oh yeah. And I I think also in that moment, that scene, um, to give credit where credit's due, uh, I think a lot should be given to the, the, the actor, Rocco Sifredi, because Man, for a for a guy whose career is basically almost entirely just pornography, uh, there is a lot going on from a performance standpoint in that, you know. And again, all the layers, because yes, on the one hand, as you've described, he's trying to sort of build himself up in that very macho masculine way of being like, she didn't use me, I used her, and I fucked her two ways from Sunday, you know, like Mm -hmm. he's trying to act like the tough guy with the boys, you know, like, nah, man, it it wasn't shit, you know, but you see that as he's thinking about it, like it really starts to, that crumbles for him as well. And by the end, there's almost this, this, yeah, this, this, I mean, he's been completely stripped bare and, and, you know, one of the lines that we're left with is him through Breyat's voice saying, she took everything I had, you know? And that's evidenced by the fact that he does try to go back. He does wander on his own after the contract's been completed back to that room. He does say, it was also like the greatest intimacy I've ever shared with a human being. And that's all delivered like in this same monologue where he starts off trying to seem like, you know... Uh, yeah, like, you know, so the Italian stallion, the porn star, Rocco Sifredi, to him just being this person who has been um, absolutely shattered, absolutely wrecked to their core. It's a, it's a really, really tremendous performance uh, for both actors. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, this isn't a film I could see myself like necessarily recommending to other people, but I'm glad we were able to talk about it because I do think I am in the the camp of that this is like a horrifying masterpiece. Like this movie challenged so much of my own ways of understanding what cinema can do, uh, which is something that doesn't happen all like that often. This, yeah, this movie was a challenge and a difficult thing to sit through and think about and engage with. But I think she's created something pretty tremendous here. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is um, an unforgettable thing. And I guess, you know, we've talked about a lot of darkness, (laughs) you know, with our with our two films here. But I want to go back to sort of cap this off and just remember, I, I, I feel like the last few episodes, I keep breaking up an image that will never leave, that will linger in my mind after it's over. And and that is the beautiful polar plunge that the two men take in how i ended the summer after their schwitz after they've had the sauna they rush out into that arctic ocean and they just jump in and it's a gorgeous shot the color it's like these pastel colors this arctic light and i think i thought about all the times you know that it's always one of my favorite parts of going to the sauna with all of us together, you know, is, is watching everybody's reactions when they go into the polar plunge and they start hyperventilating and we see how long we can handle it and then we, you know, dunk our heads and it's just, it's liberating, you know, it's such a, it's such a wonderful feeling, that polar plunge and, you know, I've always dreamed that one day it could be done in an actual just like sure. Arctic lake and I'm, I'll never forget that beautiful moment and how I ended the summer of the two of them jumping into the water where they, they were at least together there. And I think there's, there's even, and you bringing this up, there's, there's even, I think more to it than that, that I think ties the films together and the experience of the films, uh, which is that, you know, that intense, extreme contrast you know, that you get in that experience of putting yourselves, you know, into a sauna, putting yourself into it, into, you know, heat far above what a human being should uh, experience. I mean, in fact, like, the you can die in there, right? You know, it's like you are dying, basically, when you're in the sauna. You know, you, you go through that and then, you know, immediately plunge yourself into, like, freezing cold water and that that shock to your system, you know, I mean, people have talked about its, its health properties, but, but really the first time I ever experienced this, it was like the, one of the, the most powerful drugs I'd, I'd ever taken, you know? And my friend even told me the first time I went to the, to the Russian bathhouse, he says, you know, that feeling right there, you're going to be chasing that high forever. Mm-hmm. I still am. I think that's what is going on in the case of, of Breya's film. And I think that's kind of what's going on in the case of how I ended this summer. You know, it's that, that extreme contrast, you know, you've got to sort of go through hell. You've got to experience that inferno to, to sort of like shock your system into, uh, a, a, a new, a new way of, of experiencing the world or a new way of appreciating the world, whether it's 
gender relations, whether it's our own bodies, our identities. You know, she often says uh, in her interviews, I've, I've read several now with her, where, you know, for her, she's like, the, the, the biggest project of the 20th century is sexual identity and that exploration. But in Breya's case and in Popogrebsky's case, they're both sort of like looking at that idea of, you know, extreme heat, extreme cold, uh, extreme intense uh, changes, you know, upheavals, uh, whether through temperature or, or through uh, our proximity, our intimacy with another human being. That needs to happen, that collision, that explosion, that, that big, big transformation, you know, for us to go anywhere. Absolutely. The act of, of unlearning and relearning is um, an arduous journey. Yeah, well, you know, we did it. I mean, you know, yeah. we, we, you and I just had our, <laughs> our little two-hander here to, uh, I think, come through changed men, you know? Yeah, it was, it was a, a journey I'll never forget. Marsh, please come home. <laughs> yeah, Marsh, please come home. Save us. I guess, you know, then how about this? How about there's the two of us? How about we each share um, a two-hander we love? What's, what's one that you love? Oh, I mean, we already watched, you know, one that I loved. I mean, I I love Hell in the Pacific, you yeah. know? I, I mean, we already watched another great one that... It's funny, because I kind of feel like Hell in the Pacific is like the inverse of how I ended this summer on a certain level. How I ended this summer begins with them, like, in a state of, of kind of, like, harmony, you know, even if it's, like, a tense harmony, and then it unravels where... You know, most of Hell in the Pacific is them starting from like the be- the ending of how I ended this summer, and then like working towards like professional courtesy to to, right. to one another. You know, <laughs> they have to to get there uh, throughout. But I feel like I've just been like stripped so bare by Anatomy of Hell. It's <laughs> it's honestly really hard for me to to think of other sure i mean i guess you know i'll just share there's one i saw pretty recently that i i love and had i not seen it so recently i i probably would have picked it for this but it's it's very cringe inducing and i didn't know if i could put myself through it again so soon but that is um the amazing film that tom noonan directed from 1994 what happened was which is its genesis was a stage play. It is a stage play that Tom Noonan himself wrote, but he does explore the space and the two people with such cinematic intelligence that the film is such a remarkable thing to watch and it's so engaging and it'll just, it gets under your skin. It's the film itself is just a, a a first date between two coworkers and any type of just cringe-inducing awkwardness you could possibly imagine is like ramped up even farther beyond that it is a remarkable film that gets so close to the heart of who we are as people why we behave the way we do uh it is something everyone should go see so i I highly recommend tom noonan's what happened was one of one of the best two-handers i've ever seen thank you ryan (laughs) Thanks. Thanks for all this. I, yeah. uh, I had a blast. Yeah. And, uh, I did too. Good work. Good yeah. work. But I, as I, yeah, as you said, 
Marsh, please come home. And we are, we're happy to have him coming back to, to save us from this path. And, you know, we do have a, a dispatch from Marsh. You know, Marsh is up next. Uh, we've been fooling around with a bunch of other topics, but in the cycle, Marsh is, Marsh is the next one. So I'm going to, I'm going to grab hold of the, the, the radio here from how I ended this summer, going to tune it to the right station and maybe, uh, we'll be able to get a hold of Marsh here. Marsh, what do we have to look forward to next week? Come in, come in. Miss you guys. Um, so I was thinking a lot lately about uh, about our show, as I often am, and, and, and how thrilled I am that we have such great fans, you know? And, and at the same time, and I've been thinking about this a lot recently, you know, and so... At the same time, you know, a, a, a while back, uh, one of the greatest fans of all time was released from prison, John Hinckley. And I was just thinking about fans, you know, and uh, that's what I want you guys to, to bring me when, uh, when I get back for us to talk about. The topic is fandemonium. I want you to bring me movies about obsessions or fandoms uh, of whatever variety you would like. And uh, I'll see you on the other side. Wonderful. Read you loud and clear, buddy. <laughs> As always, you can follow us at Gauntlet Movies on Twitter, or you know, Marsh is, is coming back. Send him an email at Marsh's Mailbag. So at Gauntlet Movie Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Oui, vous avez raison. Mais on ne peut pas s'empêcher d'espérer autre chose. Vous ne m'avez pas dit que la maison était loin de tout. Donc j'ai dû prendre le train, puis un taxi. Il faudra ajouter cela à l'addition. Je paierai tout.